We'll do follow up. We'll mention what Hog said. We'll say that Alison got lots of um, supportive comments that can't be printed, which sounds uh, <laughs> filthy. It does. Yes, but let's do an actual podcast, no more than an hour, because then I need to eat my dinner. So. <laughs> Hello and welcome to episode two of Octothorpe, the podcast about sci-fi and science fiction. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Betty. We are riding on the heels of a phenomenally successful episode one. We have had a letter of comments. We've actually had a couple of comments. So Andrew Hogg criticised my metaphor choices. He said that sticking plasters over hurdles is not a thing that happens in athletics. But in my defense, I was always terrible at athletics. So that may be why. Alison, I believe you also got some comments. I did, but they were all in a private members only mailing list. So I cannot repeat them here. Yay. But they were all very nice. Everyone was very impressed by the podcast and was like, do more of that. It's just what we need in these straightened times. We also had an email of comment from Murray Moore, who told us all about what he's reading. A Sour Apple Tree by John Blackburn and Bunts, which is collected columns about baseball, which sounds very good if you like baseball. But not science fictional. Not science fictional, unless baseball is present in the future, which it may be. We don't know. We have not been there. He also mentioned that we haven't mentioned mailing lists in our discussion of virtual fandom last episode. So would either of you like to talk about mailing lists? Well, I could talk a bit about fan history and say that virtual fandom is a bit of an odd concept because fandom was always virtual. It started as a way for people to keep in touch with people all over the world who shared this same weird interest. What's happened here is that the rest of the world has caught up with the sort of things that fans do rather than fans necessarily changing what they do. So there are, all over the world, there are pockets of science fiction fans keeping in touch in much the ways they always have done. And a lot of those ways are through emailing lists where somebody sends an email and sometimes later somebody else replies and um, confusion reigns. Confusion does often reign. Yes, well, I have a long-standing mailing list of me and some fanish friends. But actually what's happened is that the mailing list traffic has dwindled and been replaced with WhatsApp and Discord. And if that's what happened is we keep starting up WhatsApp channels whenever we're at a convention in order to coordinate sensible things like eating and are there any more seats left in room 2B for that interesting panel. And then we just keep it going because we kind of enjoy talking to each other. And in this time more than ever. So those are all sort of back reactivate again. And we also have Discord and so on as well. So the mailing list is actually dying a little bit. But I'm not sad because it's been replaced with other things. Yeah, and I think I'm on various fanish mailing lists. There is a top secret mailing list full of fan fund winners and most of that is very good natured there has been a flurry of discussion in light of recent events but we will get to that a bit later in the show liz mentioned discord and there is also now a bsfa discord if you are a member of the british science fiction association or if you are not but you would like to talk to people who are you can join their discord and it's reasonably low traffic at the moment i don't know what they're planning to do with it but i will put a link in the show notes are you on a Discord, Alison? Have you been doing much Discording? I have not been doing much Discording, but I am on many Discords. So what I find with Discord is that I'll be doing something, some activity, and a Discord will pop up around that. And for a while, we will have a flurry of activity and it'll be very useful. But I'm not using Discord at the moment for any part of my social life, I don't think. I do use, I do use Slack a bit. 
when we're talking about things like that for a group of people who I work with. So it's not necessarily a science fictional thing at all. In fact, it's not. But but that's that's a very that's only a social space, it's not really a workspace. We talk about things like how to make money, which at the moment is yeah, don't. Yeah, we have a Discord and we have morning tea or afternoon tea for people in the wrong time zones every morning. And that's really nice. And for me, Slack is mostly a workplace, so I don't usually check that outside the work day. How are you how are you finding Discord, Liz? Are you a member of lots of Discords or only a couple? I'm a member of only one Discord because I think I'd previously assumed it was sort of for gaming mostly. But actually, it's just like IRC, which was a key part of my social life in the pre-Discord times, except it's much easier to spontaneously have voice conversations with people. So I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. And I use Slack only for work. So it's nice to keep that division of Slack is for work, Discord is for non-work situations. Yeah, I think Discord and Slack are very similar in some ways. Discord started as a way of letting gamers do voice chat and has kind of grown beyond that. And Slack started as a way to let work colleagues talk to each other in serious text conversations and has grown beyond that. And they have kind of slowly been moving towards the middle from opposite directions, which has been quite interesting to watch. The other big technology that has been used quite a lot recently is Zoom. So, Alison, you ran a first Thursday pub meeting on Zoom, and I was curious to see what your thoughts about that were and how it went. I I think I should start by saying there are a great many video conferencing options, and Zoom has emerged, I think, pretty well everywhere as having probably the best combination of ease of use and ability to to deliver quality audio and video over quite small bandwidth in a lot of cases for quite a lot of people. So it's just got the sweet spot of the package. I looked at, I wanted to run a virtual first Thursday meeting for people who don't know that London fans have been meeting on the first Thursday of the month ever since 1946 in a variety of London pubs. And we couldn't do it this month. And so I thought it would be good to have a virtual thing. And the people in the first Thursday Facebook group thought that it would be quite a good thing. So I set about exhaustively testing every video conference solution available, try and find one that would help us do that. And what I didn't want was something where the 50 or so people who might turn up on a Thursday night would all cram into one video conferencing space and have it go, oh, well, I can't have 50 people all talking at once. If you actually go to a real pub, you go and sit at tables. And what happens at the first Thursday is that people mostly go and sit at the same table every time. So there is a te- there will be a table that mostly has ZZ9 people on it, and there'll be a table that mostly has old farts on it, and there'll be a table for people who want to talk seriously about science fiction, and there'll be a table for people who want to smoth the Eastercon. And what we were trying to do was recreate some sense of that in Zoom by using Zoom's breakout rooms to essentially act as these tables. And it turns out that video conferencing for business, they don't think that people are going to want to move around between the breakout rooms regularly or dash away from their breakout room because somebody started to be boring and nip off for a smoke. Though actually, I've been at work conferences where that has been the case. So it turned out to be quite complicated to set up. And I did it by getting a paid Zoom account, making everyone in the meeting co-host. And then after that, they could move themselves around between these rooms. We had no password. Our security strategy was if anyone tried to do anything naughty, we'd boot them, which is not the most elaborate security strategy. And it worked fantastically and everyone had a lot of fun. And we had about 40 people or so. And we had a really good evening, except mostly my fun was mostly the fun of sorting it all out. Which So it felt more like 
con running type fun rather than sitting around in a pub type fun. But I I have been having a lot of sitting around in the pub type fun on on many video conferencing services. So I don't want to suggest that I've been missing out on that. Uh, the only thing I've missed out on is the, is the hangovers, really, and, and trying to get back from London in the tube at two o'clock in the morning, having not entirely worked out what I was doing. I've missed that. There's no reason you couldn't recreate the hangover experience in the comfort of your own home. It turns out that there's a the amount I want to drink on Zoom seems to be lower than the amount I want to drink in the pub, which is quite good, really. I, I mean, we do have beer and it's quite nice. And we've been buying beer from local breweries and that's good. It, it's not quite such a drinking experience. The beer is vastly better. We had two notable groups of spies on our chat. The first was the Yoms Vikings trying to work out whether this would be effective for a virtual Yoms thing, where, which is a book discussion where traditionally one person holds the speaking object and speaks at any time. And the first Thursday group, the Vanguard group in Seattle, turned up to see whether they thought they would be able to run a Seattle meeting using the same technology. So, so it's kind of spreading. And I think it's worth noting that the Toronto fandom also has a first Thursday meeting, which I think started because people from London went over to Toronto and introduced it. So I think it is not an accident that is the same day. But it's kind of nice to think that there are fans all over the world who meet on a first Thursday. One of the reasons I didn't come to the first Thursday is because I don't usually come to the first Thursday. And I thought going along, if everyone who doesn't usually go had, had clicked on the button, I was a bit worried it would get overwhelmed. So I did not go. In practice, it was fine. But also, one of the things that happened on Thursday was that we got some people who have been to the first Thursday from time to time. But because they live in Australia or Canada or Seattle or wherever, do not habitually get to it. And that included um, at least one regular who's just moved to New Zealand. So obviously, it was very nice to see them. The other group of people who got there were people who would love to go to the first Thursday and who are London fans, but who can't manage the stairs up to that back room. And so any fans who can't manage stairs, this is actually enabling for them. Do you think you will do it again next month? Yeah, we'll certainly have some form of virtual meeting every month that the pubs are closed, certainly. Technically speaking, I believe as we record that it is two weeks away from the government's proposed see whether everything has gotten better and we can relax the restrictions deadline. Yeah, would you like to make a small bet? I I mean, given how much things changed in between us recording and the episode going out last week, I'm very hesitant. But yeah, propose your bet, Alison. We'll see. We'll see. I bet it won't have. <laughs> I do not think that the pubs will be open for some considerable time. I think you might be right about Certainly that. Not. Certainly not May, probably not June. Let's hope on July. What I think we might get quicker than that is small gatherings. Yes. Well, yes, maybe. I don't know. Liz, you're an expert. Yes, but there are also lots of other experts who are more expert than me who've given their opinion on this. So I will cowardly defer to them. But also, I think when they release the restrictions a bit, people are going to stay local. So I think like gatherings where you go and see someone nearby that you can walk to, maybe things that are regained earlier than ones where you have to go and get on public transport and go to a pub on the other side of London. So I think it's all going to kind of go in in waves, perhaps. But it's also, I don't know if they've reopened sort of restaurants and bars and and things in Shanghai and Wuhan yet. So that might be an interesting path to look at. My understanding is that restaurants and bars are open in China with some restrictions, but that the cinemas and theatres have not reopened. They tried to reopen them, 
and then change their minds pretty quickly. But again, I've not been following this in great detail, so I might just be totally wrong about that. I would like to urge our listeners not to take medical advice from us. Please uh, look at what the NHS and the government are saying. We are but people discussing interesting things. What I would say that's science fictional about this is that if I ever read a science fiction book again, where society has dramatically changed in the way that personal interactions work or thing, or work works or things of that kind, unless it gives me a trigger event for that change to have happened, I'm just going to say, no, 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 these things don't happen by gradual change. It turns out that they are, in fact, triggered by events. And what we have seen here is, is a big old trigger event. Lots of old people are now doing video chats because we had a trigger event. Yeah, I mean, my, my grandmother has worked out how to text, which may be the first time that she has successfully done that. And my parents were already relatively comfortable with video chatting. So that is not a huge change. But yeah, I've noticed some changes in behavior. I, th- I think many people were already comfortable with it just because of the globalized nature of things before the trigger event, as you put it. There are a lot of parents and grandparents who are not necessarily living in the same country as their children, their grandchildren, and they've all learned how to video chat so they don't miss the important life events. Yeah. There are a lot of disabled people who've been asking for the ability to work from home for many, many years and have been told, no, we could not possibly do your very important work from home. And they have been very angry that the world has suddenly worked out that a vast majority of jobs can, in fact, be done from home perfectly well. Again, it's trigger events. Like like you say, as much as I think the impetus should have been there earlier for accessibility reasons, you're right that this is the big push that people needed to make that actually work. Last episode, EasterCon had just cancelled, and we were discussing the reasons why that might be. We haven't yet gone into lockdown in the UK. Uh, in the intervening three days, we did, in fact, get a lot closer to lockdown. We were advised to shelter in place, and hotels were advised to shut by the government. So EasterCon would have been cancelled either way. It's amazing how much things changed in three days. In the couple of weeks since the last episode, Zealand have announced that they are also not running, as we predicted last episode, and are going to do a virtual convention. So how do we feel about the idea of a virtual Worldcon? That is one of the issues here, which is when I pay for a Worldcon, which is a reasonably expensive proposition just for the membership, I'm paying for physical, tangible things, like because I know that my money is going towards essentially the rental of a large, expensive venue and all the associated costs with that. And when you get to a virtual con, apart from the costs of managing to host it, which will be probably considerable, but nothing like as much as hosting a physical venue, a lot of the work that will go into it is the work that people were already doing as volunteers for the Worldcon. So I think it's going to be very difficult to try and get a pricing structure that will work. As for refunds, I don't know how much money has already been spent and cannot be recouped. So I can see why they might not be doing refunds. Um, But I'd be very interested to see where they pitch the rate for new memberships. They have said that they are going to refund the difference between attending and online memberships when the price for online membership goes live, which I think at the time of recording is supposed to be the 15th of April. I am not persuaded yet of the value proposition of an online Worldcon. I think that this is a very hard task to manage. We manage our existing Worldcons by having a lot of extremely talented volunteers who work in areas they always work in, know how to do those things and make them work. An example of the sorts of difficulties here are that 
a friend of mine, having listened to our podcast, said, well, that would be a great model for the Worldcon. You could record a panel and then do it like that. And I was like, but John will have put in many hours of editing. I, I mean, a thousand hours, maybe? I don't know. Many hours of editing on Octothorpe One. And there's no way that's going to happen for the hundreds or thousands of panels that you have at a Worldcon. You know, that, that volunteer resource just isn't there. I was thinking about this. I mean, I think it could work. You'd have to treat every panel as a sort of Zoom style breakout room where only your panelists are on video and audio and everyone else is forcibly muted. And at the end, you let them selectively unmute themselves to ask questions. But you need the person who is normally sitting at the back of the room fiddling with the levels on the microphones to be the person who is in that room, like enforcing that with an iron fist for it to work at all. At the last EasterCon, they had a model where they passed a book around the audience and people wrote questions in it that they wanted to ask John Scalzi, who was the guest of honour. And at the end, they chose questions from the book and read them. And I think that had two very big advantages. It meant that the person who was doing the interview could scan through and find the next interesting question while John was answering the previous one. And it also meant the person scanning through could look for sentences that had question marks at the end, which completely brought to an end the this is more of a comment than a question phenomenon, um, which I don't know about you two, but it is my firm opinion can die and go in the sea. I don't know if you think that would translate well, but that, that, that's how I would do it if I was going to, which of course I am not. Unlike running a virtual pub meeting, this is a problem which is very well established in professional video conferencing uses, and they do both of those models. So it's normal for professional video conferencing setups to have a number of people who are allowed to speak and everybody else be auto-muted. And then I've seen both of those other ways work. Either you have a text chat that everybody has access to and people type things in it, or you have a text chat that everybody has access to, but only the moderators can read, so they can be reading what's coming in on it. Or you can have a thing where people just click a button if they want to speak, and then those people are called on in turn. And I've seen all of those systems work. I've seen the system work where people type their question, but then the moderator calls on that person to speak. And so all of those things are fine. You, you, as well as the moderator who's allegedly the moderator of the panel, you almost certainly need two more people, one managing the audio for the panel in the way that the tech person at the back of the room would, and one actually managing that text chat and making sure that any actual bad actors are booted. So I think it's interesting because the problem is that the panels are only one part of the experience, and I cannot see myself sitting at my laptop for four or six hours a day watching online panels in the way that at Worldcon I would actually physically go to those panels. So I think we've got to take that into account. I think you're right. And I think that's one of the things I want to bring up, which was a criticism I saw on various mailing lists I'm a member of, which is a real division between people who wondered to what extent it was not worth having a virtual world con because the social aspect of the world con is really the primary motivator for them and to what extent it's worth putting on a world con because obviously having something is better than nothing and it's not like there's a mystical option where we just have the world con anyway and we all get exactly what we want so it really is a choice between having nothing at all or having some online offering i don't think I would pay as much as I would pay for a normal attending membership in order to attend a virtual convention. But equally, I can see an argument that it's better to have something on rather than just completely abandoning it. If they run a virtual con, at what time are they going to do it? That's a really good question because you don't want to isolate, you don't want to exclude the local fandom, but you equally don't want to exclude the US fandom. 
I, I don't know this for sure. I haven't looked at the membership numbers, but I strongly suspect the US contingent was the biggest contingent it usually is at any given world comp. And so it's a very, very good question. I think in some ways it's not the US which is a problem. So I'm just looking at the Hugo finalist announcement, which will be on the 7th or the 8th, depending on your time zone. And it's starting at 8am New Zealand time, which is 9pm in the UK, 4pm on the East Coast and 1pm on the West Coast. So you can actually manage to find a time when I think New Zealand and the US are awake, but you cannot find a time when New Zealand and the US and Europe are awake. And those of us in between New Zealand and Europe, I think we'll just end up giving up because I'm, I'm not sure there'll be any time that suits everyone. Somebody has told me that as a result of everybody's lockdown, we now have two time zones globally, which are coffee and beer. <laughs> yes, I've heard that too. And it's uh, worryingly true. <laughs> so you're either in coffee time or beer time. Yes, that is, I think, a very good point. I think that is a very good question of how they're going to do it. My guess would be that it will be bad for Europe and I will not get to attend much of it. But then again, I was not planning to go to New Zealand and would not have attended much of it anyway. So perhaps I am not the person they need to be prioritising. So now I can say something temperate about Guff, which is that they haven't, the Guff race is due to end next week. And I was going to do a big push on, you know, the Guff race is due to end. Please, everybody vote for me. Though I can't say that because I wouldn't dream of being the campaigning type. But they haven't really said what they're doing. They've indicated privately that the plan is that the winner will attend the convention virtually and take their trip at a later date, which seems completely fine to me. And I would have thought would be fine to lots of other people as well. But it raises that question. I mean, I'm very happy to attend the convention virtually in those circumstances, but I certainly wouldn't be able to attend in the same way that I would in person. And it would mean me almost certainly going on to night shift for a week in order to make it work. And that's kind of slightly weird. I mean, it's not impossible, but it's slightly weird. Obviously, you're in a position where you miss out on uh, Con Zealand being the destination World Cup, which we touched on last episode. It's a great shame. Um, I think that rearranging the race for a future time and having the delegate get enthusiastically virtually involved is the best solution but it is a solution that does have a lot of logistical questions as you say and i'm not sure what the answer to any of that is i am very glad that i am not the administrator of a fan fund at this time because it must be a nightmare for the administrators to decide what to do but i would like them to decide what to do because there are some times when it's appropriate to take a decision And I think this is an announce it in time for the race to either be cancelled or to finish. I suspect the race will not be cancelled because I suspect they will want there to be a delegate for the virtual convention that occurs. Um, Because not having Duff and Guff candidates when there is a Australasian Worldcon would be a great shame. And doing it this way means you can at least have some fan fund candidate involvement in the Worldcon, even if it is virtual. Maybe they'll listen to this and, and write us a letter. Yeah, they don't have a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) They've got a little bit of time. I'll do a faster editing job. It will be fine. So the Duff winner has been announced already, uh, which is Erin Underwood. It's a great choice for anyone who hasn't heard. Fantastic choice. Yes. And it doesn't say anything about Erin going to Con Zealand. It just says that she will try and travel in 2021. But I assume that is also the goal. I submitted my bond and a guarantee that I would attend the convention if I won (laughs) (laughs) and travel. It's really weird. And then, then of course, when all this kicked off, I went, oh, 
Well, that's interesting, isn't it? So you have guaranteed that if you win, you will stay up all night virtually attending ConZealand? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, I wasn't going to do that anyway. EasterCon has announced that they're going to run the bidding session for 2021 and 2022. I was going to be the fan guest at Concentric, so I'm going to be holding a Zoom party. I I don't know if I should say this. People who are interested in this should get in touch with me. If I know you, I'll give you the details. It's not going to be super secret. Because if I was at the convention being fan guest of honour, then one of the things I would do is, is hold a definitely definitely not official room party i think that's a good plan and i think you'll find that other people who might have done things at EasterCon will be doing those things over next weekend because otherwise what we're going to do like i don't know what do people do at easter if they're not at the EasterCon? this is a hashtag privilege problems but because i am an academic i get two extra days off around the easter weekend so i've got six days of not having anything to do and it's just oh it's going to be it's going to be tricky without EasterCon there to kind of fill it up with stuff I think doing a Zoom thing or, or something is a really good idea. And I also think that having it so that it's only people who would have been there anyway is a good idea too. I would. I really don't want to suggest that only people who go to the EasterCon can come to my party, but I think I am going to suggest that only people who know me can come to my party. I don't think that's unreasonable. <laughs> that's good, because then I can come to your party. So I approve. You definitely can come to my party. Yes, you two are both... Both invited. Liz, you would you would fall under both criteria because you currently have an EasterCon attending membership. I do, but that's because it got to the point where I was trying to sell it and then I realised it was going to be cancelled and I felt bad selling someone a membership and then they would be on the hook. How many hours ahead of us are you, Liz? So this is the problem. I am currently six hours ahead of you, which means while I would very much like to come to your party, it will be like the early hours of the morning for me. It will be in the early hours of the morning. I mean, I suspect that the dregs of the party will just be as you're getting up. It's that time that I cannot get to from either end, basically. I cannot stay up late enough or get up early enough. As yet, the only thing the EasterCon committee have announced they are doing over the Easter weekend virtually is the bid session, which probably means that there's not going to be much programming happening. So to what extent do you think British fandom are going to do any programming sort of as a grassroots effort? Do you think that there will be lots of room parties popping up? Or do you think that it will be very ad hoc and we'll see Facebook posts at the time? I mean, I've announced I'm doing something, but I and, and part of why I did that was to encourage the others. So I'm doing a thing and there's a bidding session. I was trying to hope by, by saying I'm doing a thing, then we might see some virtual book launches or virtual author readings or things of that kind because i think that would be quite fun there's a lot of virtual author readings going on right now anyway i see quite a lot of them pop up on twitter and facebook but i wonder if part of it is also that the committee have been understandably quiet but if i was organizing things i might not want to jump in enthusiastically uh in case they were still planning something Uh, and as it gets later and later it then becomes even less likely that anyone will jump in enthusiastically so that might be part of it. Last week, we talked about giving the committee space and letting them work out what they wanted to do and not having a big discussion either way. Um, but now, given that it's a week until Easter, as we record, if they were planning to do something, I think they would have announced it at this point. And I think that it's completely legit that they don't want to, because I think it is a very different thing. And, and you know, they must be completely gutted that they can't run the convention they were planning. But I think at this point, it may be time to start trying to get the ball rolling on organising some grassroots stuff. And I think Alison's impetus to do that is is a good one. And, and I've got some ideas about things we could do. We could do a live podcast recording. It's only been a week. Would it be OK to have a third Octothorpe? Yeah, why not? 
in only a week after the second. We don't want to give the impression this is going to become a habit. <laughs> no, we, we could do. We could have an Octothorpe Zoom party. That could work. Exclusive. We each get two plus ones uh, or one plus two, depending on how that works. I'm hoping that there will be stuff happening next weekend. There was something that happened this weekend. Yesterday was Wi-Fi Sci-Fi. Did either of you hear about Wi-Fi Sci-Fi? I did not. Tell me about Wi-Fi Sci-Fi, John. So I saw this on Glyn Morgan's Twitter feed. I saw it after it had happened, because that is how all the best parties get heard about. You hear about them after they finished. Um, But it was a Zoom convention which starred various luminaries. It had Gareth Powell, Adrian Walker... Michael Carey, Tada Thompson, Anne Corlett, Patrick Edwards, Jonathan Piddock, Elliot de Bodard, Kim Lakin-Smith, Michael Rowley, Kevlin Henney, Anna Chapman, Dave Hutchinson, Derek Kuntzgen, and Preme Mohammed. But it had two paddles, it had cafe clutches, and it had a quiz. And it, I believe the two panels are on YouTube for people who couldn't make it to the Zoom because the Zoom was 90 people and there were more than 90 people interested. I believe you can go and watch both of those on YouTube. It looked like it was quite good. The tweets I saw about it seemed to be people having a good time. Um, I'm a little bit annoyed I didn't hear about it when it was happening as opposed to hearing about it the day after. But I think that's often the way with the convention. You see people tweeting while they were at the convention and you did not see the marketing push leading up to the convention, which is distressingly common. But it sounds like a really good idea. I think two panels for for a one-day convention virtually is probably about the right number because I think Liz's point about not being able to sit for six hours in panels is probably right. I think something like that next weekend, if if anyone puts it together, I would I would enthusiastically get involved with. It is interesting that I think everyone you listed who was on those panels was a science fiction author. One of the things I do like about EasterCon is it tends to have fans and you know, scientists and historians and people with non-writing expertise on the panel as well. So it'd be nice if we could put together something that included all of those people. I agree. I'd obviously agree with that. We've been talking a lot about video conferencing software, and I think that a lot has been done over the last few weeks to really advance fandom's engagement with these tools. Zoom has come under fire over the last week or so for various bits of bad practice to do with privacy. I don't want to give the impression here that I don't think people should use Zoom. Zoom is an incredible piece of software that's really helping people keep their mental health and their communication lines open at the moment. And I think that is fantastic. I do think it's worth being aware of some of Zoom's potential pitfalls and protecting yourself against them if it's something you mind. And if it's not something you mind, obviously go wild. But recently, there have been a few bits of controversy. Notably, they had some Facebook data in their iOS app that was sending data back to Facebook. They had said that their chats were end-to-end encrypted, but it turned out that their um, encryption is not end-to-end and is, in fact, based on a slightly different encryption method to the method that they had said they used. Their macOS installer abuses pre-installation scripts to install itself without letting you see what's it going to install. And a few uh, months ago, I think actually maybe a year ago, they had installed a local web server on every Mac they installed on, which let them reinstall their app even after you'd uninstalled it. It is worth saying that they have published a blog post in the last few days that outline a 90-day plan to address a lot of these privacy concerns and that they are working very hard to address them. And I appreciate those points got more and more technical and less and less understandable as time goes on. I will put links in the show notes 
And as I say, I want to emphasize that I am advising people be careful rather than stop using it altogether. Um, but both of, of you, to what extent do you think this is a thing we need to be super concerned about? And to what extent do you think that this is something that we just need to be mindful of? I think that a lot of the people who are making the most noise about Zoom use either A, Facebook, or B, emailing lists, both of which are notably less secure than Zoom. So there's a, they started, these Zoom, they're clearly a bunch of wide boys, honestly. They started this company, they made a good product, they did not care about privacy, and they, they, they clearly failed in three different areas. The first is that they, they have a load of kind of corporate spying stuff so that your boss can spy on you which is, I think, fairly normal for corporate software. They didn't care in the sense that other people's security things, they just kind of worked around if that way they got to make a better product. So they basically went, aha, can we make a better product by, by entering operating systems by the back door? Yes, we can, then we should do that. And the third is they left gape, great gaping holes in their security accidentally while they were busy trying to make a better product. And they ended up with a better product. And now they're going, okay, so clearly everyone's using our product because it's better. We should probably go back and fix those holes we left in it, which I think is fair. Um, it's not the best way to behave, but it is better. It is noticeably better for any video chat over eight people. And it's probably better for most of the ones under that, except possibly Microsoft Teams. People think Microsoft Teams is very good, but everything else is definitely worse. I will agree with you. I think that they have clearly made a good product and now they are fixing it i think part of the reason they are fixing it is because there has been so much criticism so i do think absolutely. i do think strong absolutely absolutely they wouldn't be fixing it if they weren't forced to yeah i think i think strong criticism is an important part of that and that is the spirit in which i criticize um so i've been using zoom for ages because it just worked better than all the alternatives. So, I mean, I do a lot of video conferencing anyway, and I do a lot of video conferencing with people who have pretty terrible internet connections. And Zoom was noticeably better than any of the alternatives for that. It was better than WebEx. It was better than Google Hangouts. It was better than Skype. I mean, we didn't try running work chats on Facebook Messenger, but I suspect it's better than that. Oh, God, Facebook Messenger is awful. Oh, my God. So I'm quite... I think I feel I'm quite relaxed about it in that I know it does some terrible things, but I sort of assume all software is doing some terrible things unless I'm using one of the real like good open source ones that have, you know, been built from the ground up for that kind of thing. So I'm glad people are aware of these things. I'm glad people are pointing them out and that they fix them. But otherwise, I'm not too wound up about it. I should say I do use Microsoft Teams a lot now because all our work, uh, all our work, well, everything basically has moved to uh, Office 365. Um, and Microsoft Teams just works really nicely and it just works a lot of the time. We haven't run a really huge event in it yet, but we are swapping our weekly seminars to uh, Microsoft Teams. And they will be, you know, we sometimes have got up to 100 people in there. So I'll see how that works. It's very corporate. I want to say two things in reaction to that. Um, I'm going to push back slightly on the thing you said about um, every software doing this. I think I think Zoom is more egregious than most so far. I think the point about Facebook is a reasonable one. Facebook are obviously in some ways much more egregious than almost anyone else. But at this point, my neighborhood 
community group is on facebook my streets whatsapp group is obviously hosted on a facebook owned service all of the local shops put their opening times and announcements on facebook so at this point i must use facebook to take part in my community which is something i resent hugely but does appear to be distressingly true i will say microsoft teams is very good i think that the problem there is obviously you need an office 365 subscription which not everyone has i don't think microsoft have made any overtures towards making teams free to use i suspect because they see skype as their consumer chatting tool and they don't see microsoft schemes as something they need to open up Um, but whereas zoom i believe have relaxed a lot of their restrictions in light of the coronavirus pandemic oh allison is shaking her head teams doesn't have a free tier but only the host needs to have the paid account i think that's the the important thing. And Office 365 is not expensive if there's just one of you and you're using it for this sort of thing. People kept saying with the Zoom account, because I got a paid Zoom account to do the first Thursday, oh, do you want some help with the cost? And and I said, well, compared to getting a tube ticket to the pub and buying one pint of beer, it was there. That that, that was the amount. So so these, these tools are not expensive cause compared to the life we've just given up to get them. You know. Um, so yeah, that is my grumble. And also, nobody cares about your video chats, and the pub isn't exactly a secure environment either. I don't think the cabinet should be using Zoom. I, I, I did think that was a bit shocking. And no doubt they've done magic cabinet things, but seeing as they don't for anything else, it doesn't seem very likely that they really have this either. Well, that's one other thing, which is because Zoom uses a predictable naming scheme for archives of the chats the washington post was able to reverse engineer it to see stuff like therapy sessions and things that had been conducted over zoom and so i I do think that there are problems here that do need addressing but i entirely take the point for especially for the first thursday it sounded like it was by far the best tool for the job but i do think you've just got to be careful and just be aware and i will post links in the show notes to help you do that let's do a short staying sane in the apocalypse bit to round out the show and then we can go back to having nothing to do i I was going to call you out for your privilege on six days over easter and talk about having nothing to do because a lot of people i know are actually losing their jobs now that their business has kept them on for a little while but the work has now dried up the cash flow isn't there and they've had to let people go rather than furlough them so people are losing their jobs and that is very sad and it's happening quite a lot um and by quite a lot if you look at there's a map for the united states where the spike in the unemployment rate is something like 10 times the largest unemployment spike in the last 50 years so so that's a big thing um i have had to give up my business for the time being i mean it won't it will come back and all will be well but all of my income has dried up because the Print-on-demand sites have basically stopped shipping T-shirts now, and I decided I couldn't run an Etsy store at a point where we were likely to get sick quite soon, and people kept asking me where their stuff was. I did have a 24-hour period when I'd finally got my much-delayed shipment from China and sent all my old pins and sent some new pins, and then I decided, no, it's time to shut for a bit. But I'm fine. People should not be worried about me, but people should be worried about all of the people who have no income and no savings, of whom there are a great many. Yeah, that, and that's why I say I'm privileged. I think I, I am still employed and my job does not require me to go anywhere. So I think I am incredibly lucky that that is the case. And I don't want anyone to think that I'm unaware of that because I am. I am very aware of that. 
You also mentioned post, and I have been getting things posted to my house, and a few of them have taken a long time. But I did order something at 12 p.m. on Friday that was delivered at 12 p.m. on Saturday last weekend, which I was a little bit confused by because I thought the post was taking longer, and that one just seemed to sail through, and I'm not entirely sure why. I'm not really ordering a lot through the actual postal service because I I don't tend to post mailietas or things like that. But also because Thailand has a thriving system of motorbike delivery guys and messenger guys. So, for instance, I ordered some gin at about, I think, 4pm on Thursday and about 5pm a man on a motorbike turned up with my gin. It's pretty good. We ordered some beer from Wildcard Brewery. A link is in the show notes. Um, who are the brewer one of the breweries around the corner from us and they delivered it just within a few hours of us ordering it but that was not postal that was indeed a bloke from the brewery in a van yes we get veg boxes we've we've had veg boxes delivered ever since we've lived in this house uh they have had to stop taking new customers because they are so in demand now um but we are getting all our vegetables delivered once a week and we ordered some coffee off the internet and a man from the roaster came around and dropped the coffee off we ordered beer and that was bewilderingly actually posted from the warehouse which is a 20 minute walk from our house but that also arrived and we have been getting takeaway more than usual in a sort of effort to support our local restaurants and that has been again very efficient so we are finding that it is easy to get things brought to us which is nice the thing i found most stressful not in the first week but as things went on was not being able to get an almond croissant or a flat white and we after some considerable failure to find anyone who would deliver, we did in fact find someone to deliver these things to us yesterday for vast amounts of money, but I was very happy. There is a bakery called Hoxton Bakehouse in, in Southampton that do sourdough bread and lovely pastries, and they are still delivering also. So we have been fine on the pastry front. I also have a local bakery that I frequent quite often. And since they are open and don't normally do deliveries, and so they're trying to very hard to pivot to delivery right now, I have been there a couple of times to do a sort of arm's length by a croissant on my you know, daily exercise walk, which is very nice. And most of the coffee shops will basically send me an iced coffee on a motorbike if I wanted it, but I have not yet reached that point. That is fair. We are still allowed out here for exercise once a day, so I've been taking advantage of that to thoroughly explore the streets near my house. Alison, have you still been going outside regularly? Are you still driving to a nearby park or are you... Uh, no, 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 we've not We've not driven. In fact, I have to, although it's not one of the approved reasons to go out, I am going to send Stephen in the car for a little drive because we have a car that really will, the battery will pack in if we don't drive it once every couple of weeks. So we are just going to go for a drive and, and we'll say we're caring for somebody if our, if stopped. I, I feel like I have elderly relatives and having a functional car is quite important to us and it keeps breaking down. Oh, no, yeah. It's, it sounds good. Um, but otherwise, I haven't been out very much. Um, we have a garden. Our garden is more, it's not really, I think garden is too strong a word. We have a patch of scrubland attached to the back of our house. And so that's quite nice. I mean, you know, just a little one. But it turned out that if you neglect a garden consistently for 20 years, it, it, it looks quite neglected. So we've been out there a bit. Stephen has been teaching me Tai Chi in the sunshine. And he says, let's do a warm up. And then about five minutes later, I'm like, I've done enough now. That's fair. Uh, Liz, are you staying 
healthy. So I haven't been going out for too many walks, partly because I live in a very built up area with pretty narrow pavements. So it's quite hard to do any kind of distancing if you run into anyone. Um, it's also April, which is the hottest month of the year. Uh, and so it's all, that's also a deterrent to going for a nice walk because it might be 36 degrees outside. Um, I have been carrying on though with my doing aerobics in front of YouTube plan. Um, to a point where I have now found a channel which will do me a six week exercise plan and we'll see if I can do six weeks of indoor YouTube aerobics without going around the bend. That sounds good. So we haven't discussed books or TV or video games or anything like that, but we are at the point in time where we have probably talked for enough this week. So we will get to that next week. So that was episode two of the Octothought podcast. As always, if you have any thoughts, comments, criticisms, wafflings, or other things you'd like to tell us, please give us an email at octothorpcast at gmail.com or tweet with the hashtag octothorpcast. We will mention tweets and emails on future episodes. But for now, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. The music used in this episode was Fanfare for Space by Kevin MacLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under a Creative Commons BY 3.0 license. Music